Hello, this is Stephen King. Well, sometimes that is better. Hi, Georgie. I'm your number one fan. Get busy living. Get busy dying. Here's Johnny. <laughs> Hello and welcome back to the Constant Reader Podcast with me, your host, Richard Shepard. And today we have a very exciting episode for you, a discussion of the 1982 portmanteau horror film Creepshow, directed by George A. Romero, based on an original screenplay by, you guessed it, Stephen King. It's a homage to the old EC comic books of the 1950s, five short, nasty tales of ghouls, revenge, bugs, and meteor shit. Joining me to dissect it is Peter Laws. Regular listeners to the podcast will have heard me reference his book The Frighteners a few times, plus he is the author of the Matt Hunter series of supernatural thrillers. He also has a regular column in the 14 Time reviewing films, and is host of two podcasts, The Creepy Cove Community Church and Frightful, both of which I thoroughly recommend. Plus, he is an ordained Baptist minister. Welcome, Peter. Hello. Uh, thank you for having me on the show once again, and uh, to talk about a very, very cool film. Well, yeah, thanks for agreeing to be on. Um, so tell me about uh, your, your history with uh, The Creep Show. Uh, did, you, did, you, did you watch it as a kid? I mean, were you like a, a VHS consumer? I was. I was, I was a VHS consumer for sure. Um, I wasn't old enough to go and see it at the cinema. And um, I, can't, I can't even remember seeing any posters for it at the cinema. So whether or not it had a wide uh, distribution in, in Britain, I'm, I'm, I'm just not aware of that. But what I do know is that I was in a... I was in a shop called Macro, which was this old kind of Costco equivalent up in the Northeast. And I was walking one uh, night with my mom and I saw the VHS tapes, which were available to buy, um, to rent out. So for people who had video stores and there was this, there was a, a, a box that stood out from the rest because all the other boxes tended to be black. And yet the creep show box that I saw, the case was white, which I'd never really seen before. And on the front, it had this like stunning artwork of this sort of like Grim Reaper type character pointing down at this word creep show, like inviting <laughs> me in and being a little monster kid. I was just like, Man, I've got to see that film. I wasn't able to, you know, convince my parents to buy a 80 pounds VHS for me. Um, but I did make it a priority to seek it out when it was available for rental. And I did and, and loved it. It was love at first sight, I assume. It was, yeah. Well, for, I mean, for a monster kid, there is there is so much here to actually enjoy because it's, I mean, even outside of its own merits, it's wonderful to see so many different horror movie actors, isn't it? I mean, it's it does read like a bit of a who's who in the. I mean, the very few first minutes we get um, Tom Atkins, you get mm. Joe Hill, Stephen King's son, now a writer in his own right. Yeah, and you get this. Wonderful opening sequence where you see the the outside of the house with the pumpkin and the music, and it's just like Halloween. Yeah, it is, and I, th I think this is what what Creepshow really nails is um, that kind of overt melodrama of like gothic atmosphere. Which, to be honest, it it, it it's it, this could easily have been a complete failure because I think there was quite a risk for George Romero to do this because if you were to watch Creepshow back and forget that you like it and just look at it stylistically you would say 
you can imagine you can imagine them filming it and George Romero saying, "I know at this bit, you know, let's tilt the camera and then let's have like an animated cockroach on the screen and then let's let's put some bright bright red lights in the background and it's you know for 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 some people it would be like wow a little bit over the top mate you know <laughs> like calm it down particularly because he's come from films like Martin which is an incredibly understated and thoughtful vampire movie Dawn of the Dead which is definitely over the top but it's not Dawn of the Dead isn't like stylistically over the top it's 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 over the top in terms of action and mm. and gore and and I love Dawn of the Dead whereas Creepshow makes some stylistic decisions which I think were quite risky uh, but I absolutely love them because they're so in keeping with the source material, you know, the, or at least what inspired the source material, which are EC Comics. Yeah, but I think part of the appeal of um, Creepshow is that it, it is quite silly. It's 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 a very silly mm. film. It's it's a scary film, absolutely. Yeah, but it is silly in a way those comics were kind of silly. You know what I mean? It's, it seems like an odd thing to call it. Well, no, you're absolutely right, and I th- I think that's quite a tricky balance to get to say. I know. Let's make a film that is both silly and scary and actually nasty mm. um and that's that's what those comics were like when you when you read some of them back um yeah they're they're, they're quite ridiculous in places but they're quite spooky but occasionally they are just so grim in terms of their their treatment of violence and they don't hold back from from gore and death and that's why i i, I think romero did really quite an amazing job of creep show because with all of that bundle, which could have, could have been a complete failure, and people could have just sat there laughing at it, but he was able to spin it in a way so people were laughing with it, and that, I think that's quite an achievement. And it, it was an achievement for George Romero. This is this. I think this remains the most. It's the biggest opening he ever had in a cinema in terms of commercial success. Oh wow! And I think it's one of his biggest commercial hits. And yeah, it's, it's kind of ironic that that happens with a film that is so untypical for him because mm-hmm. there's there's very little of the political element we often get with George Romero there's very little of the yeah. the, the I don't know the, the kind of the adult kind of seriousness with which something like Dawn of the Dead or Day of the Dead plays mm. out it is it is him kind of getting off the leash a bit and using tricks that he kind of never goes back to and never does again so it's, yeah. it's kind of weird that he takes a step out of his uh, his usual thing and mm. really hits it out of the park yeah that's a good point i'd never i'd never thought about the the fact that it's it's it lacks all of that extra subtext unless there's unless it's in there and we haven't noticed <laughs> maybe there's some like really deep allegories going on but but well there, there is kind of a uh, i don't know I, I don't want to get into it too early but there is kind of an interesting running theme that is, uh, I, I think, quite political throughout all, most of the stories, mm-hmm. is that, that uh, 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 rich people are pretty terrible. Have you noticed this? <laughs> like if, yeah. if you're a rich guy, like uh, like the patriarch from Father's Day or mm. Leslie Nielsen in Something to Tide You Over, yes. or of course, E.G. Marshall as a modern-day Ebenezer Scrooge mm. in, um, oh, I forgot what the last story is called. They're creeping up on you. They're creeping up on you. Yeah, there is this thing where like uh, all these people are... They're, they're they're pretty horrible and they pay the price for for being total dicks really actually that that's that's a good point um and whether it's rich people who are seen as uh, as as dicks or if it's just authority figures in general because the 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 wraparound story of the father and the son 
you know, it's not really a class issue. It's more about like the authority figure in that family is a jerk. Mm-hmm. And I think um, Romero has, he always challenges authority of one in one way or another. So yeah, that, that's actually a good point. Creepshow does consistently do that. Um, so, well, bravo. And he, <laughs> yeah, well, you for, <laughs> even, <laughs> even poor old uh, Geordie Verrill in the second story, he's, um, well, he's, he's kind of at the bottom of the, the social yes. hierarchy and he has this, this distrust for for authority figures, doctors. He he, he doesn't want to trust the doctor because he thinks the doctor's going to amputate his arm or, or go everywhere else. Basically, yeah, yeah. And also, like his father thinks he's an idiot, and his the priest as well is is judging yeah. him. I mean, he is I think kind there of is. A, he is yeah, well, yeah. yeah, I was going to say he's, yeah. he's kind of the author of his own demise yeah, in a yeah, lot exactly. of ways. Bless him. <laughs> and he's greedy as well. He's venal. You know, he yeah, just wants yes. the money. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I love that sequence where he goes into the office and he's hard bargaining with the uh, the doctor. I just love that bit. <laughs> but um, I noticed. Let's let's start at the beginning there with the first yeah. story, Father's Day, mm-hmm. which is, as I say, the first story of uh, of um, a rich bastard getting his uh, his comeuppance, but then also gets his revenge on his uh, on his fairly feckless children. Uh, so you have um, a group of uh, a family gathering for a reunion. You have the the younger members of the uh, the generation. You've got um, Ed Harris, of course, yeah, playing the man who's marrying into this somewhat um, gothic family. Uh, Warner Shook is the the very uh, camp safari suited brother Richard, which I think <laughs> it's a wonderful performance. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's it's not subtle at all, but <laughs> and of course um, the current matriarch, uh, the uh, legendary Viveka Lindfoss, who um, mm. I hope I'm saying that correctly. First of all, yeah, that sounds about right. The, the wonderful Swedish actress who is probably best known to genre fans from The Exorcist 3. And uh, she's got previous history with the place they're going to. Her um, her father is buried there. And the family tells stories about what an absolute bastard he was to all of them. He was demanding. It's implied that he killed uh, um, the, the woman's um, fiancé, I think. Yeah. And that he generally held his family in an iron grip. And uh, I'm not going to spoil it for you, but he does get his revenge on all of them at the end. Uh, what did you think of this story? Is it a good way to kick things off? Does it, does yeah. it set up the table nicely for Creepshow? Oh, definitely. I mean, it, it's this is the thing with with anthologies. You, you can always work out, like, how do you shuffle the cards and, and which one do you play first and, and particularly which one do you play last? Mm. Um, and I think if, if I was picking the cards to play, this would be one of the, 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 the... This would definitely be the strongest contender for the first because it's not... It, it's not the for me personally it's not the best one of the lot but it's a really good one and it just gets you on the track of like ah this is what's happening yeah. it, it, it throws all of the stylistic stuff in there um it has some great great monster effects or, or zombie effects i should say and um i i think it's really really a good solid segment and what i like about it is that you know the, the lead up to the lead up to kind of the the zombie coming out of the the ground is 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 great, but I just feel like there's, there's that scene where this uh, you know this this woman um, is pouring out whiskey or bourbon or whatever onto mm. the grave onto the grave, and she it's like she goes back every year to I don't know if it's to pay him respect pay him respect or to kind of think about what could have been in their relationship. I'm not quite sure what her motivation is to come back, but she comes back with and shares a drink with her dad but then the moment when the hand comes out of the Mm. grave 
and John Harrison's score kicks in. And I think I think we might talk about this later, I don't know, but I think the score to Creepshow is a masterpiece. I've, I've always thought it is a stunning piece of horror writing. Um, and the, the hand just comes up and then the synths just go, <laughs> and it's like an alarm, like a siren going off and it's a complete assault on the senses. And I, I used to use this sequence to, when I, you know, I don't know if you're nerdy, but when I got when yes. I started getting when I used to get surround sound systems and um, I wanted to demonstrate like the bass and the the ability <laughs> of like the surround sound, I'd be like, oh, I'll play this sequence and creep show, and people would just fall out of their chairs when this <laughs> music came on. But yeah, so the hand comes out, and then the, the lights go crazy, and it's just holy crap! And this film is playing by a different set of rules than say Friday the Thirteenth or or you know films that were out at the time. Um, and, and I think this is the perfect story in which to introduce us to the rules of the game for mm. Creepshow, which is just like melodrama. Yeah. And it also reminds you that you're in a comic book, that kind of, because yeah, constantly yeah, there are these totally. kind of things where you have these f- flash freeze frames and you have that bit where it um, it does a transition as if comic book would. And it does yeah. remind you constantly that that, that is kind of the format we're dealing with here. <laughs> Yeah, and it's got the best dance sequence of the whole film, of course. So is that the only one? But yeah. uh, when Ed Harris does his, uh, you know, chicken neck type of down, <laughs> down, down, he's such yeah. a dude in this sequence, isn't he? I love it. He's, yeah, he's got he like is. little metal um, collar tabs, and the way he strikes a match on everything, it's just like a like <laughs> yes. a little throwaway character thing. But he's always like lighting a match just yeah. like this, and like that. I don't know cool if you've dude, seen. Have, have you seen Night Riders? Uh, which is, yes, also yeah, starring of course, Ed Harris with yes. Tom Savini, Stephen King, and Warner Shook as well. Mm, yeah, um, and so it's amazing how many kind of Romero uh, ensemble cast like crops up in that film, like all of his friends. But the, yes, in you know Ed Harris is, re- is really really good in in Night Riders, um, and I just love how the way he brought Ed Harris back in for this for this character who's a bit kooky but has this sort of like um you know it's just this edge to him yeah uh but yeah but i but I, so I, I love the first first story and um, well he's kind of the outsider it. isn't he he's the guy yeah. who's like just being initiated into this family and its strange rituals and its bizarre history yeah and it's just very cool dealing with it i think also mm. um I, I bring it up today have you seen the lost daughter no Olivia Coleman film. Uh, I think it was on Netflix recently. Yeah, yeah. My wife says it's really good, but I haven't seen it. It it is. It's a heartbreaker. But um, Ed Harris is kind of at the end of that dancing to to disco music. No way. <laughs> it's just weird. Does he do? Is it this? Is it? Um, Don't let go. Is it that song? Oh, I, no, I, that'd be amazing I think if it was like um, oh, I can't even remember. It's like a really cheesy '80s rock anthem. Wow. Might be living on a prayer, actually. Oh, okay, but he still dances really well. He's still in great shape. He kind of oh, looks very similar, and he's cool. still he's still got the moves. God bless yeah. him. He he's still got the moves. Yeah. <laughs> but um, another thing to say about uh, Father's Day is, mm. um, the 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 dad character is just horrible, and mm. he's just so controlling. And again, you know, if if Romero is making any statement about people in authority being jerks like this is a great authority figure to start with because he's just so selfish and he and he and he refuses to um let his daughter be happy and um and and he's and all that he can think about is his cake you know like oh what my cake and it's just it's obsessed with it and you're like like does he want the cake is the cake really the main thing or does he just want to be in control and he's lost control i don't know what but he's just he's totally self-focused 
and he's horrible. And, no, I, um, I think that's the way it is. I think he just yeah. wants control. That's why he kills um, his daughter's uh, fiance. Yeah, because it brings it means she can't ever escape from him. And I, th- I thought it was quite tender. It's a beautiful performance from Viveka Linfus when she goes to the grave and she talks about the fact that he kind of he he's he, he's not only a horrible person, but he's also kind of made her a horrible person. Like she never actually mm. got beyond this stage. It's that idea of like, you, they fuck you up, your mom and dad, you know, yes. idea of, you can never really escape. You, they just end up repeating the same things. And mm. like the second generation are equally bad because they're, you know, feckless and they're just dancing around and just waiting for people to die so they can inherit. It's yeah. the idea that kind of the, 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 the tree has been rooted in very bitter soil, you know? Yes. Yeah. That's <laughs> that's that's a very good point. Yeah. So everybody's it's, it's now just horrible. Just, yeah, it's been poisoned by <laughs> by him. But and the and the effects the effects mm. in this are, are, are fantastic. And I think this is where perhaps we could mention Tom Savini because of course Savini uh, up until this point had I mean he'd been you know wowing people in the effects world with his 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 makeup effects, but. Up until this point, it had kind of been about um, wounds and more realistic uh, deaths, like slasher movies and uh, Friday the Thirteenth and Prowler and, and these sorts of films, mm. where he was he was you know amazing people with how good he was at a head blown being blown off, like or a bit of shoulder being bitten out um, <laughs> on uh, in, in Dawn of the Dead. So all that stuff's fantastic, but he really is a, a big fan of. Um, you know, classic horror as well. I, I got a, mm. had the, a good fortune to meet him once, and um, you know, his uh, his you know chatting to me about his you know interest in in classic horror, universal horror, monsters, and so Creepshow is you know was his opportunity to flex his muscles that were beyond just I can blow someone's head off, as wonderful as that is, but to actually create monsters. And he does that with the creeper himself, you know, mm-hmm. this like really impressive like skeletal figure. But this, I think the the zombie in this, the the granddad is is brilliant. You know, it's, it's just a horrible shambling um like it doesn't look like it doesn't look like the zombies from um, Dawn of the Dead at all, you know. Mm. It's, it's, it's a proper rotting corpse. I think they used Rice Krispies around his eyes to symbol, <laughs> symbolize maggots and stuff. You know, he just really went for it, and you're like, oh wow. Um, we'll talk more about Savini's work, I'm sure, as we go on, because the best work I think is yet to come in this film. Um, but yes, love. Yeah, love it, it reminded me a lot of um, the zombie from Return of the Living Dead, which oh. is kind of a flawed film, but it has that yeah, idea yeah. that oh, the zombies yeah, that are dripping, you can, they're, they're, they're rotting yeah. on the bone. They've got that visceral, kind of fetid kind of quality to them, you know? Yeah, which which I think is really, really cool. Well, I mean, it's horrible, but, you know, so <laughs> no, I've, cool. I've, I mean, like, not to get too dark, but I've, you know, I've got police friends, for example, who talk about how when they've been to a house where they find a body, mm. um, and I don't mean a murder, but maybe just someone who's died in the body, and how, like, the, the, the bodies, they're not just sort of like, dry <laughs> like like and sometimes they've like liquefied or like become part of like fused with furniture and stuff i mean it's totally mm. totally dark stuff and creepy but tom savini of course comes from a background of seeing real death on in action you know when he was in vietnam mm. and is famously sort of inspired by that so um so yeah there's something about how he 
chooses to make the creatures in this, which has got this added edge. And it all just fits into the the general, let's, you know, little kid opening your mouth and showing food <laughs> just to freak out your sister. It's kind of that type of approach. It really is. And it works. It absolutely yeah, yeah. works. Yeah. Um, now, before we move on from Father's Day, I just wanted to talk about like the, the, the morality of these... Um, of these uh, uh, short films because mm-hmm. the whole thing about like we talk about the EC comic books they are kind of moral plays essentially and it goes to the idea of like if, if you transgress if you're bad you'll get punished for it in the end and this one this this one does do that because you know the people are punished for being horrible essentially but like the guy at the end he gets his cake he, he kills most <laughs> of his family he doesn't see he seems to kind of get away with it I mean he has to be a zombie yeah. It, it does kind of have that idea that evil just kind of carries on. There's no mm. kind of like actual judgment on him for, for yeah, doing that. Yeah, because for me, he's the most horrible character of all. Yeah, and so he's lived a long re- life and he's been rich and he's, you yeah. know, he's, yeah, he's been kicking about and then he dies and he comes back. It seems yeah. fairly, yeah. Mm. So if this really was a classic morality play, I feel like he would have um, not done as well as he ends up doing. Yeah, all choked on a bit of cake or something. I yeah, don't know. Oh, yeah, that'd have been a great sense. bit at the yeah, ending exactly. if he if, if he yeah. eaten eat one slice of the cake, <laughs> chokes, and he's calling out for Bedelia, and she can't come because her corpse is there. That'd have been a nice ending. I think they missed a trick, but they they should have had a deleted scene where he 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 takes the head and he like you actually see him put the icing and the candles on it. I think that would have been oh, just yeah, a lovely yeah. sweet moment in the film. I think yes, just the, the, the attention to detail he's giving mm. it here, you know. <laughs> Yeah, and so we we go from the from the from the disgusting to to the uh, uh, the ridiculous and disgusting the lonesome death of Geordie Verrill. It's uh it's 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 probably the funniest of the five sections, I reckon. It's um Stephen King playing Geordie Verrill, a uh, a New England farmer who finds a meteor on his property, which uh, which he intends to sell to the to the meteor department of the local university. Every university has one. Just ask. <laughs> But before he can, it breaks open, revealing, uh, releasing a, a, a viscous fluorescent liquid, which isn't doing anybody any good, least of all Geordie. He's infected and uh, he starts sprouting uh, green, spiky hairs, which eventually cover his whole body until he's only got one way out. Now, uh, uh, what, what, what do you think of the lonesome death of Geordie Verrill? Because I remember watching it the first time around and probably not liking it very much because i thought it was maybe just a bit too silly yeah um i mean I, i'm afraid i'm still in that camp like i thought that the I, the first time i saw this i was like um oh oh it's this is the comedy one because mm. you know like the all-out comedy one because that often happens in anthologies and it is yeah. often the second one the second story where ah this is the a little bit more light-hearted um, and don't get me wrong, there's some really gross effects in this and things that made me feel uncomfortable in terms of like the 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 decay of his family mm. of, of his life and, and and the way he's like breaking down um so there's horror in it for sure but um stephen king plays this so over the top and by the way this is not just his fault like romero told him like go for it like just do whatever be as stupid and dumb as you want to be which he took you know literally and he did that which is fun but if if you're not in the mood for that or you're not prepared for that I for me, it's just one step further past the ridiculous. <laughs> so that I so when I first saw this, I thought, ah, well, that's my least favorite story, but that's okay because the film's great. And then in later years, I thought, ah, well, now I've come to appreciate who Stephen King is, and you know, maybe I'll view it in a different way. But then even on rewatches, even though I can find some good stuff, it 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 basically becomes, and this is a question I think people should ask themselves in a kind of 
deep psychological way. If you had to choose one story of creep show to <laughs> not have, which would it be? Um, if because the, there are quite a few, there's more stories really than most anthologies. I think there's sure. five in this when mm. really there's often just four in these films. Um, if I had to nuke one of the stories, it would be this one. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. It's, it's not my favorite and it does kind of, uh, it does skew the energy somewhat because it is played so broadly by Stephen King. And he it's it's not like it's not even a comic book, it's more like a, a live action cartoon more than anything else. It feels more like yeah. that, doesn't it? Yes. Which I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, this is this is in keeping with some of these uh these these old comics, you know, that there were like ridiculous stories which were funny and 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 so it does do that. And I, and I think it's, I can see why it's in there. And I think it's authentic, you know, to the, the original spirit of these comics. But I think the, the rest of the stories for me are, are so resonant that this is the one that I don't quite connect with. Having said that, I think this is w one of the stories that kind of creeps me out in a, mm. in a way, because like just, just little things like when he's looking at his fingers and he's got these like weird kind of, wart things appearing yeah, after he's touched the thing and i just uh, yeah yeah and i just remember there being something about like being infected or like disease and the you know the, the 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 gradual rebellion of your own body which is something that david cronenberg talks about a lot in his uh films which is always a i i think that's the type of horror body horror which kind of does speak on a deeper level it's quite disturbing when you allow yourself to think oh yeah you know my own body at some point we'll start to rebel and not be what I want it to be. Um, but in amongst all of that stuff, there's, you know, Stephen King, like sort of looking all cockeyed at the camera, like, oh, meteor shit. <laughs> I mean, thinking about it now, I am laughing at it. So um, maybe it's not so bad. Um, and the ending of it is... Yeah, it's a, it, kind of an apocalyptic ending, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And, and this is what I think there's a good switcheroo with this because I remember whenever I've watched this story, I thought like, no, this is a bit silly. This is a bit silly. But just the way it ends, it seems it suddenly plunges into like the lo the lonesome bit mm. of his death. And you're like, oh, this is actually touching me. <laughs> I thought that he, this poor guy has struggled with this on his own and, and, he, and the end that he meets. So. Yeah, so he's like the patient zero for the end of the world, essentially. It's, it's kind yeah. of what's implied at the end. Whether kind of, I think all the rest of the stories, with a possible exception of the last one, are essentially like family dramas. They're kind of insular. They're kind yeah. of isolated within a family or within a, a small group of people dealing with an issue that is then mm. contained at the end or in the crate. That's kind of ambiguous. Yeah, yeah. Whereas this is yeah potentially sort of the first the first um, domino in the kind of the end of the world. So yeah. and, and it's, I, it's, it struck me was, um, it, I, I'm sure you're a, a Lovecraft guy, but the color well, out of space. Weirdly enough, that's precisely the sentence I was just about <laughs> to start. Um, so I was just going to say that it, it reminds me of the color out of space, which is one of my favorite Lovecraft stories. Mm. Um, but you know, Lovecraft took it a bit more seriously when he wrote his story <laughs> than, than this, which is you know, it's quite nice having both of them in the world. Have you seen the recent film adaptation of *The Color Out of Space*? I have. Yeah, I thought I was Nicholas Cage. I, yeah, I was it, quite. Yeah. I was quite impressed by it, and I'm 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 always I'm always ready to watch a Nicholas Cage film. Oh, absolutely! But and, and the, the, it's like I say, it is a silly story, but there are some flourishes which I quite liked. I mean, it does talk, not doesn't talk about it, but it does kind of have some themes of addiction to it. 
like um, yeah. drinking and uh, that kind of dissolution, mm. which is which is kind of very powerful. Now we know that kind of Stephen King around this time was dealing with his own issues regarding both yeah. being isolated from people because of his addictions and also yeah, just just drinking to kind of get out of himself, to get out of his own head. Yeah. So looking back, I think it, may, it might have a little more depth than perhaps it uh, perhaps it should. Mm. I don't know. But well, I mean, it's got little touches. Like I, I think the film. There's a film playing on TV in the segment. Oh, is it Spencer Tracy? No, it isn't. I think it it's is, a Star it's, is um, Born. It's a Star, um, yeah. Which, uh, is that a Spencer Tracy? It's from the 30s. No, I'm thinking of Poltergeist 2 because they were watching a Spencer Tracy oh, okay. film that, and I watched that yesterday, sorry. But it's even like stupid little references like that which are kind of like, oh, you know, this this is, this is star, this comet has landed in the yeah. in his house and it's, it's born, you know, on the earth and... <laughs> You know, so he's watching like these little things, and there's a bit where I think they there's a signpost to Portland, Maine, which is and Castle Rock. Yeah, yeah, and all yeah. this sort of stuff. So all these little things that are woven into it is, um, yeah, give give it certainly some depth if you want to want to look for that. But I still would say if one of them has to go against the wall and never turn around again, this is the one <laughs> for me. I'm afraid. Fair enough. I also wanted to point out I, I like the fact that the uh, the actor. Who plays the doctor is both the, the the meteor doctor and the medical doctor, and I like the idea that Geordie <laughs> is, is so kind of isolated that he yeah. kind of conglomerates every authority figure into one person who looks like like an average mad professor, kind of a nerd <laughs> type, and that's yeah. like the only thing he can. And they have the same office. It's like the idea that everybody has this. Every authority <laughs> looks the same, has the same office, yeah, and is trying to like screw him over basically yeah <laughs> unless of course you know he lives in such a, a backward small little town that like the, the the doctor is also the mayor is also the policeman is also the sheriff is also the comet specialist because they have to have one of those in a small <laughs> sure, town yeah <laughs> okay so that brings us on to um something with a little more a little more substance uh, uh, a little more meat on its bones uh something to tide you over Starring uh, the 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 late great Leslie Nielsen and um, Ted Danson, also Galen Ross as well in a very small role, and it's uh, kind of a classic setup. Um, Ted Danson's been sleeping with Leslie Nielsen's wife Becky, and Ted Danson uh, takes grievance with that and plots his revenge on both of them. They both drown, buried up to their necks in sand on the waters of the New England Bay. And they come back from the dead and uh, get their revenge on Leslie Nielsen, as you would expect. And that makes it probably sound a lot more simple than it is, because this is quite a long episode, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I don't think it feels long in my mind. I know that I've got, I know some people who aren't as big of a fan of this uh, this segment and feel like it drags a little bit, but I'm, I really like this one. Um, but yeah, I, I think it does take more time to tell its story because it's got... Uh, it's just got quite a few different like moves mm. it has to make to get to where it's going to go. So um, yeah, I, I I'm, I'm a big fan of this one. Well, it is kind of it is kind of this classic setup where where the the guy confronts the younger man. It's a bit like uh, sleuth or something like that, and you yeah. kind of think it's going to be a power play between these two individuals, but mm-hmm. you you don't kind of realize how deeply disturbed Leslie Nielsen is in this one. Yeah, he's a truly truly messed up guy because not only does he want to like kill these people he wants to watch it and rewatch it it's 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 kind of yeah, implied yeah He's- yeah i mean and, and the, the video aspect of it was really interesting because of course like even a video at the time um in the video nasties era in particular one of the worries was that you know video had this ability to warp 
mm. the viewer because whereas if you go to the cinema and you see a bad experience about you know a bad scene someone getting shot or killed or stabbed or whatever um that that was just for a moment you couldn't you weren't going to get the projectionist to wind that back a bit mate i just <laughs> want to say that again whereas the worry was uh people could potentially if they get their hands on vhs tapes or betamax and um, they could watch things back over and over again and it could warp them um whether or not that's happened to leslie nielsen or not i don't know but he certainly wants to keep a record of mm. the bad things he's he's doing but of course in his mind it's not bad because um he's he's simply defending his honor and uh and getting getting his um own back or in revenge yeah, and he's he's he's, he's playing games, isn't he? He's he's kind of he seems like a very yeah. like, playful character. The way he talks and the way he kind of is, he's he's like a, a little kid who's kind of set up this this this, yeah. this trick and this trap for 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 dancing and uh, yeah, he's definitely. So delighted that when it actually happens. Yeah, yeah. Because I can vividly remember the bit when he um he he has I, I don't know are we, are we avoiding spoilers in this or no um, no no it's, it's no, spoilers everyone's yeah because yeah. um if you, you haven't know, seen it when, by now just yeah so, yeah. Yeah, when Ted Danson is, you know, in in the sand, and um, then he wheels on Leslie Nielsen wheels on this uh, this 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 TV, but before he switches it on, he's like going, "It's showtime!" <laughs> and then switches it on, and you think, and, and you, it's like he's doing something fun. But what he has on there is his own wife, mm. you know, being in in a well, like one of the worst deaths you think yeah. of. It's so gross. Um, and yes, yeah, so there's something totally unhinged about this man. <laughs> um, and uh, so I loved it. And um, what I liked about it as well as I, for me, I think this, this was the, the, the story that really had a kind of emotional punch to it in certain mm. sections The there's a bit where, you know, Ted Danson is, is, is watching his girlfriend, mm. Leslie Nielsen's wife, like, dying basically and drowning and the water's going on and the music the music sort of swells up and it's and ted danson is like what you know what what the hell is happening like this is so so shocking and that's the woman i'm in love with and you know and it's i don't know there was just something quite i found it quite moving <laughs> um that this this was a couple who really loved one another and just had the wrong guy in the midst of them well yeah i mean it's 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 implied at the end that that death has not parted them they're, they're still yeah. they're still together. They're still a couple, and they kind yeah. of they triumph over this guy and eventually kill the impediment to their relationship. Even yeah, though they're now zombies, yeah. but yeah, yeah. So you're cheering them on, really, when they come back from 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 the water. But um, but yeah, they're they're doing something that zombies don't normally do. You know, um, they're they're conversing with each other. They mm. start. They're still a unit. They're still a couple. They're talking to one another. Which you don't you don't get that in zombie films. Like, <laughs> hey, should we go and eat that guy's brain? Yes, dear. Yeah, that doesn't happen. <laughs> but in this, like, they're still they're still working together, and and I think Tom Savini really nailed um, the bloated corpse yeah. in a in water, you know, covered in seaweed. Um, and I think all he achieved a lot of this by just putting um, tissue paper on on their face and bolding up tissue tissue paper is really great at doing that sort of like theatrical type stuff, which is not CGI or anything. It's just old fashioned theatrical Mm. um, tricks. Um, But even down to how thin their blood is. So when they get shot in the head, um, the blood does not come out in a way that I've seen in other films. It, it it comes out with a trickle. It's Mm. like, and you hear another sound type, like a, 
down their face and there's just oh wow the whole the sea has just kind of washed them out completely um uh, but yeah and the music for this is uh, weirdly this 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 um this sequence reminds me of Columbo. Um, sure. Like, no, I, I There's see something that. Yeah. about it. Like I think Leslie Nielsen being there as a kind of the guest star and just the sort of the murder mystery nature of it and the elaborate way someone is killed. Um, but then there's a, there's a sequence where you cycle through the security footage and over the soundtrack, John Harrison, the composer, plays the music that is, is famous for, from Columbo, mm. uh, which is... Uh, It is a minor version. It is a kind of minor version of that, which reminds me of Columbo for some reason. But but well, when I think if, if they cut it off at that point and then they didn't come back from the dead, that would be a great Columbo episode. Yeah, it'd be fantastic. <laughs> yes. Yeah, but even but even like Romero, like the 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 synth starts going down, boom, 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 and it keeps going backwards and forwards. And mm. as he's doing it, he cuts from like the security cameras on on the note, like ba, 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 and it's just really like a clever bit of of filmmaking, I think. So yeah, I love this this episode. Oh, it's wonderful. And I, 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 there is a lovely grace note I noticed regarding the special effects is when the zombies come back. Their faces are horribly bloated, but their hands aren't because they've been buried in the sand. So if you look at it again, see their sat, their oh. hands, their hands actually look quite normal. They're kind of a bit like uh, pruned and a bit sandy, but um, they actually look like normal hands because their hands weren't actually touched by the sea. Wow. That's that's just kind of the thought that Tom Savini puts into these things, which I think is absolutely. I, well, I, I never even noticed that before. Oh, I only noticed it watching it on 4K recently. You know. <laughs> oh yeah, it looks great in that. Um, mind you. Uh, I got to respect Ted Danson for putting mm -hmm. himself in harm's way in this because there is a scene in this where he, yeah. you know, you see him under the water when his head is literally in in a fish tank, um, and uh, it's not it's it's not it's actually not the best effect ever because in that moment I'm surprised they didn't like murk up the water a little bit. Mm. It's, it's it's so clearly it's so clearly kind of not <laughs> real, but then it might be part of the theatrics of it. But anyway, but but to to get the effect of him under the water and quite deep under the water. Ted Danson had to basically have his head inside a, a fish tank. Yeah. And they had oxygen tanks and things available for him, but the story goes that Tom Savini, as a backup, had a sledgehammer next to him. So if for some reason all the all the fail safes didn't work, he just smashed the window, uh, smashed the glass in, and he could breathe again. Oh, so yeah. uh, no, he's, 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 that that the eyes was what, thinking that I was watching it. This I thought this this must be very dangerous. And yeah, Ted yeah. Danson is an absolute trooper for doing it. But then again, all the cast are pretty good. I mean, Leslie Nielsen. This is kind of post Airplane, but he makes Police Squad. I think in the same year, so he's still like redefining <laughs> his character as like a yeah. formerly straight leading man who's now like getting mm. goofier, basically kind of taking on. Well, and apparently on the set he was he was goofing it up with like he's famous for having his fart machine. I don't mm. know if you've seen him use that, but you know I saw him on Breakfast TV in Britain using it, and he's, he uses it in interviews. Um, and uh, he had it on the set of of Creep Show, and was just like <laughs> when people were doing 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 their takes, he would suddenly like, <laughs> hit yeah. this button. 
No, I heard um, a, an interview with Jamie Lee Curtis. Uh, they made a film together and she was really, really annoyed by it. <laughs> she, she really hated the fact that he was doing oh, this. Oh, wow. <laughs> I'm, I'm a huge fan of Leslie Nielsen. I do I do miss him. I think when he died, mm. I that was, you know, sometimes when, when a celebrity dies and you just go, oh, yeah. gone. You know, like it's yeah. just the thought, the thought of like the world not having him in it. <laughs> um, so before we move on from something to tide you over. I oh, did... hang on. Sorry. Ah. Before we move on. I just remembered something. Go for it. Are you aware of an alternative ending to this? Because I... Yes. Because I, wasn't it supposed to end with him in the electric chair or the gas chamber? Yeah. Or, no, not it, a gas chamber. It cuts off at, uh, just before the zombies get him and the police break in. He's a hysterical, raving mad, and he confesses to killing uh, the two people. And he, he's in the gas chamber. And he, see, he looks through the observation window. This is what I heard. And he sees the two zombies there kind of taunting him. And as the gas comes down, he says the iconic line, which is, I can hold my breath for a very, very long time. Yeah, yes. Which would have worked. That would be good. That would have been a pretty cool cool ending. But um, yeah, I suppose maybe they were thinking, man, this is going on long enough. Sure, let's, just, yeah. uh, <laughs> let's just finish it. So before we move on from that one, I, I did want to point out that kind of, I think... Again, something that struck me on a recent viewing, how similar this, this uh, sequence is uh, to, to the fog, because you actually have fog kind of oh, coming yeah. in, bringing the zombies. You have zombies coming back from the dead to kind of take mm-hmm. revenge yeah, on yeah. somebody who's, who's done them wrong. And I think even like the, the eerie scenes of the empty beaches, I think is very reminiscent yeah. of, uh, and the soundtrack as well. Mm-hmm. Again, it's yes. got that synthy John Carpenter thing. I think it's, yeah. it's, it's obviously an influence on on this section. Yeah, although uh, you know, ironically, this is the this is the episode that doesn't feature the two fog characters. No. So the fog actors, which yeah, will be the next true. one. <laughs> but it does have uh, Galen Ross in a very small role from Dawn of the Dead in, in a thankless yeah, yeah. a thankless role as Becky, I think. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> doesn't get to do much apart from uh, die and then come back. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right, so you, you you mentioned the next episode, which which brings us to the to the crate, my my particular mm. favorite, and we're in um, who's afraid of Virginia Wolf territory here with um, <laughs> an unhappy academic couple, their friend played by Fritz Weaver, uh, the uh, the couple's the couple's played by. Adriana Barbeau, of course, and Hal Holbrook. And uh, their friend Fritz Weaver uh, finds a crate under the stairs, which contains the uh, the unwilling, you assume, uh, passenger from an Antarctic expedition of a century ago, which comes back to life and starts eating people both willingly and uh, unwillingly going to them. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. It's, it's, it's kind of, again, it's another classic revenge tale. It's the idea that, um, yeah... If you're unhappy, you can kind of use these things to to get rid of the people you don't like, and it's it's yeah. I, it's it's wonderful. I, I think it's it's it really helps. It's got committed playing from both of the the leads, Holbrook yes. and Barbo, and it it's kind of it's got a chilling moral in that uh, being married to Adriana Barbo may not be pleasant, which is something I've never considered. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't I've have always, expected that. Yeah, I was going to say that's always been like the dream. I think it's uh, yeah. <laughs> it's been the way, you know. So what, what, I, I, what do you um, think of the crate? What do you think of the crate? Absolutely love this one. Yes. This is my favorite. Um, and don't get me wrong, the other ones are fantastic, but this is the one that I think just is perfect. It just, it, everything about it works well. And um, the story is really gripping. The characters mm. are fabulous. I, like you said about um, Adrian Barbeau 
and uh, Hal Holbrook, but also Fritz Weaver, I think, mm. does an amazing job. Um, and just that sort of, I, I really like seeing horror films about older people. And I don't just say that now becoming an older person myself. <laughs> like even back then, you know, there was this feeling of, um, you know, in the early 80s, watching watching a lot of films about teenagers, mm. uh, you know, and, and, you know, maybe 20 somethings being in peril. Uh, and or haunted house movies when it's like a young family move in but there weren't as many films that i would watch where older people would be would be scared and i and i think that would that would sometimes speak to me on a kind of more a deeper level thinking oh wow they're the people who are supposed to have it all together and their their lives are falling apart so i remember that being really refreshing and um but but the, the the story itself is just it works on so many levels um adrian barbeau is brilliantly annoying in this <laughs> like she's a complete bitch and um just call me got, barely everyone does yeah, yes <laughs> and she just comes out with like some of the most cruel um <laughs> cruel and heartless things you know uh like calling calling her husband like a, a, a barnyard exhibit and all this sort of stuff and like wearing your balls for earrings and all of this you can tell like Stephen King likes this sort of thing you see it in all of his work he just loves these sort of phrases and um, and he just throws a whole bunch of them at her so she's fantastic and um, Hal Holbrook is he just takes this stuff and mm. it's a it's a great example of passive aggression um, where he 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 just you know, takes it, but inside he's fantasizing about hurting her. Mm. Um, and I thought that was really quite a deep, <laughs> a deep idea. And, and, the, and of course, at first you don't realize this, this is what's clever about the story. So when I first saw this in the, in, in the scene where they're at a garden party and he whips out <laughs> like a Magnum 45 or something and like, Hey, Billy <laughs> blows her brains out. And then the, the best bit is when everyone in the, um, you know, at the party, turn to him applauding. and start applauding, going, nice shot, bullseye. You know? And it's, again, it's this thought of, you know, he, in his brain, this is, and I think this is how couples can work, you know, they can have, like, fan, like fantasize about, like, a, a maybe not shooting them in the head, or I don't know, it depends how bad the <laughs> argument was. But, you know, can sometimes fantasize about, like, oh, oh well, if, if I wanted to, I would say this to you right now. <laughs> but I, I won't, because, um, you know, I'll probably be fine in a half an hour. And he has these moments, and then, the story presents him with an opportunity in which he could actually do something yeah. to be free of this person. You know, he set they set free this monster, but it's actually you know, him getting set free from this horrible marriage. Um, that he he takes it, and it's interesting when when his character does decide that he becomes quite calm mm. and sort of yeah, hey yeah, we're all right. Whereas Fritz Weaver's character is more normal in the sense that he's like holy crap this is awful like one of the students is dead and like this is, oh, and, he, and he's probably freaking out um so i just think it's a very complicated complicated in in terms of so i don't like deep i should say it's deeper it than is. you think yeah no i, um, I agree i mean just going back to a, a few things you kind of touched on there i i think the idea of uh, growing old is 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 is, is kind of very mm. central to this and you kind of have the, this this older generation, Hal Holbrook and Fritz Weaver, and then you have like their younger counterparts. You have the the grad student who's um kind of up and coming and, and doesn't rest, and is obviously ambitious and is, is is kind of bullying him a little and like pushing him around. And that's that's kind of quite an interesting dynamic there. And you kind of think subconsciously think that he 
wants him to die on some level. And then you have the couple at the garden party who are like the two young <laughs> academics, and they kind of oh. represent how how Holbrook's obviously looking at them, thinking, "Well, you know, I remember when." I could have gone back and kind of done that myself. I could have like started yeah. again and started over because mm. his life has kind of degenerated to this point now where he's yes he's stuck and he, he becomes quite childlike in a way once he starts mm-hmm. planning like getting rid of Billy he's, again yeah he's like Leslie Nielsen he's, he's like got this plan and he's very excited about it and he's like oh my god I'm gonna <laughs> this is so much fun this is so much fun yeah and it's um yeah and they also like they play games like he and Fritz Weaver they play chess and it's like yes. they're just playing games as kids and kind of and keeping secrets and uh being in on mm-hmm. something together I think it works really well and going yeah. back to yeah like I say the the idea of him unleashing this monster it is it is the subconscious isn't it it is buried yeah. deeply. It's in the it's in the Antarctic first, so it's very deep south. Yeah. It's it's like in in the in the lower regions where things go a bit weird, and then yeah. it's unearthed and brought out into the light, and it, it, it kills people on his behalf. It is him externalizing his fantasies of of, of murder, essentially, isn't it? It's, it's that mm-hmm. uh, that idea. No, so, yeah, so I agree. It's extraordinarily um, deep and satisfying sequence and i love the university setting i think it's very authentic that, yeah. it, it horlicks university i don't know if that's a real thing or not is it, is it horlicks i can't yeah i don't know if they named it after the drink i'm, I'm not entirely sure <laughs> I but um and of course you've got um you've got uh, uh tom savini creating um well Precisely. What is known as fluffy, I think, on set. That's right, yeah, fluffy, and and this is because so you've got all of this stuff we've been talking about, mm. this more deeper stuff, um, which certainly does work about it. But then on top of that, you have a kick-ass monster mm-hmm. and some incredibly cool sequences of of gore <laughs> and attack <laughs> and and tension. Um, and this is why I think it's brilliant. It's it's so so good because yes, it has this um this this monster. Which again, I, I think this is one of the first things um, Tom Savini made in terms of like monsters and uh, these first kind of animatronic. Yeah, it's the first fully animatronic, he, I think. Yeah, yeah. Even though it's out, you know, out of sequence, but you know, he he really worked hard on on this, and it's it's just an iconic. Like I think when you think of Creep Show and you think of like a badge or whatever, mm. um, or a T-shirt that people will have, they may have like the the severed head with the candles in it from. <laughs> Father's Day, but on the whole, it tends to be more like uh, Fluffy. It's, mm. it's just this really iconic monster. Uh, but but what I like about Fluffy is it does it looks really dangerous. Mm-hmm. You know, even just its eyes, like the, the way the eyes like peer out of the the gap in the crate, mm. and when the caretaker is, you don't, you know, he doesn't see that. We do, and then the caretaker's like here in this what essentially sounds like quite a cute little. Um, bird in there it's like <laughs> and it's like hey what's what's in there I'll, I'll reach inside and he reaches inside and inside there is this absolute yeti monster freak thing um that again drags him in and there's blood just pouring down his body and everything goes red um it's totally over the top but terrifying and um and then later fluffy when he when he's actually killing people like when he kills the student and it's i think the effects of really impressive yeah you know just like ripping bits out of his face and um and then dragging the dragging the claws down um it's just so realistic i mean i obviously i know it's not real and it doesn't you can tell it's like 
latex and all that sort of stuff. But there's something <laughs> about the immediacy of these practical effects. Um, yes, yeah, so the claws and the teeth—they they, they look genuinely dangerous. Yeah, they look so sharp. Yeah, you kind of and, you kind of wonder. Like what was this creature doing in the first place in the Antarctic? Just like killing everybody. And how how did they get it in the box? How did they kind of capture it and keep it in there? Was it was it frozen yeah. like the thing from another world, or is it just? Yeah. Well, and yeah. why didn't they like attach a note to it saying, uh, "Don't open this," or you know, yeah. be careful? Well, unless unless the unless the creature was actually um tame and not that bad when they put it in the box or earlier on but he's been trapped inside this box for so long he just has to let out his anger in the same way as this guy does that's probably thinking a bit too deep um, i like it but but no um i i really really like it and um i also think the story moves in a direction which is kind of unexpected because this creature you know is it is psychotic and they have to sort of deal with it mm. in a, in a way to get rid of it. But uh, you're really sad for the creature in the end because it yeah. didn't ask to be stolen from its habitat and brought over to America. It didn't ask to be put in, inside a box. Um, and so it's, there's moments of like poignancy, I think in this, which can go miss, you can miss them if you're not paying attention, but like that. So that the thought of the sad loneliness of this monster at the end, you think, oh man, I feel sorry for this guy. And they should do a, they could do a sequel for this in Creepshow, the new series probably, mm. you know, that breaks out and attacks a bunch of people. I heard someone talk about that nice. on a podcast I think a while ago. That would be cool. Um, but, it, but there's even like, there's a, there's a moment which creeped me out, a subtle moment where he, um, he's, the, Hal Holbrook is talking to Billy and he's on the phone. He's saying, can you come over? Because there's a girl, you know, who's been with Fritz yeah. Weaver and she's, there's something wrong with her. Um, and, and I don't know what's happened, but she's, she's crawled under the stairs and she just won't come out. And there's something just really weird and horrible about that. It's creepy, isn't it? And but it is creepy, when he, yeah. he attacks Adriana Barbeau and, and nothing happens. And he starts oh, laughing. Yes. He starts laughing hysterically, and you yeah. kind of think this this guy is really close to just going mad right now. This is yeah, right up. And I think at the end of it, Hal Holbrook has kind of got what he wanted, but he's also a very different person. I think he, he's he's mm -hmm. a lot more. He's he's got the upper hand with Fritz Weaver. He's able to kind of manipulate him into keeping the secret and going yeah. along with what he says. And you kind of always got the impression he was something of the junior partner, but now he's he's more he's colder and darker, and he's yes. he's found this this element to himself where he can like just mm -hmm. get rid of people. And I think that's, yeah. that's the point of the end is that you can't actually ever contain that once it's out, you know, you can throw it off a cliff, but it's still gonna, yeah. it's still gonna come back and get you at the end, you know, it's, mm, it's still, definitely <laughs> it's sin, you know, it's going to touch you. It's, it's yes. Yeah, yes. Yeah. It'll, it'll bubble up at one point or another. Um, and, uh, I do think James Harrison's score for this mm. is, is really good because like it's, it's, he he opts for a more kind of classical uh, piano based score um for most of it and it's it's really it's really effective and just sums up the atmosphere and i also think that this is this is the other story as well as um the uh lonesome death of Geordie Varil, mm -hmm. which is the one that has a lovecraftian feel to it to me because you know just set in academia and it's like you know this 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 foreign place, this uh, exotic mountainous region where they brought back this creature that they don't understand what it is inside a crate, and they're trying to investigate what it could be. So, um, yeah, absolutely love the crate. I think it's uh, amazing. Yeah. And also a couple of uh, John Carpenter references. I think referring to the thing, 
So you have, um, I think, oh. Julia Carpenter on the crate. And again, it's also the idea oh, of like bringing something that. back from the Arctic. It's it's uh, so yeah yeah. It's, yeah. He, he, it's it's weird how big of an influence. Well, I think John Carpenter was on this because you've got that opening scene which is straight out of Halloween, and then you've got the 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 fog references and the third story and the the mm-hmm. thing references and this. I think it's like the idea of just how hot he was at that time, as was you know Stephen King, of yeah. course. But yeah. it's the idea of the the influence he actually had on things. Mm-hmm. Which which brings us uh, to the, the the grand finale. They're, they're creeping up on you, and uh, uh, rich, rich, uh, uh, horrible bastard E.G. Marshall, as Upson <laughs> Pratt is 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 spending the evening alone in his uh, in his luxury, uh, very technologically, um, uh, very very high technology apartment. Uh, he thinks he's alone, but he's not. He's, he's got like at least a hundred thousand cockroaches, which are coming in through the walls and trying to get him. Mm. It's implied because he's 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 uh, he's uncaring and feeling. He he treats people like dirt. He's a racist, and uh, he's just yeah. a, generally a, a a bad egg. Uh, like Geordie Verrill, this is essentially a one man performance. E.G. Marshall is absolutely wonderful. I think as Upson Pratt, mm-hmm. and uh, did, did did it really work for you? This this as, as, as both as a finale and a story. Yeah. Yes and no. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's what's interesting about this story is it really it it really changes gears after watching mm. the crate um which is so high octane um you know firing on all cylinders type of of horror story um we move into quite an elongated section of conversation basically yeah. of and not even conversation well sometimes but him you know walking around his apartment and talking to people and so i think your enjoyment of that just depends on how much you like dialogue and <laughs> and writing of script because on that level it's great because his 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 delivery of some of these lines <laughs> are, is hilarious you know and how he interacts with people and how just nasty he is and he's on the phone with people who you know a husband i think is just just blown his brains out mm. or something and, and he's like well, he already, i always said he would go out with a bang or something <laughs> <laughs> he's just taking the mick like all the way through and but but i think watching this as a kid i didn't really have a, as much of an appreciation for that side of it so i was like oh, why is it suddenly getting a bit boring yeah <laughs> um where's the monsters where's the spookiness however um I don't like cockroaches, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've got to say. Well, I think the story know, depends very much on how you feel about cockroaches. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So if, if it was spiders, was, I, I would have hated this. But well, I yeah, so I don't like anyway. spiders either. <laughs> um, but say rats, for example. Like mm. I can watch a film about killer rats and I just don't care because I'm not bothered about rats. Snakes, I'm not even that bothered about. Mm. But but spiders and 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 cockroaches, <laughs> um, uh, and I don't like them. And so once the cockroaches start turning up, I feel like the level of horror just goes to the max. <laughs> and then that final sequence, the final moment when they mm. erupt from his body, is just so intense um, that you know I told you about. I would demonstrate my sound system mm. um whereby using the sequence from father's day i would demonstrate just hey do you want to see something shocking like <laughs> friends who would come around my mom's friends who would come around i'd be like check this out and i'd play them this where it bursts out of his neck and it was just and, and the, the looks of disgust on people's faces so yeah i think it it definitely works um whether or not it's placed in the right it probably is placed in the right part of the sequence. 
Yeah, it, it is kind of sure like it is it a, an impressive finale, and I, I think that's a bit uh, what I mean. They spent the most money on was these cockroaches, so yeah. I think they, they they definitely saw that. I think they were I can't remember they like a it was like a dollar a cockroach, but they used tens of thousands of them essentially. So a lot yeah. of their budget went just went towards that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Although they mixed them up with their uh, raisins. Oh, that's cool. So okay. so when they when it comes to like splurging out. You know, like every dark spot you see isn't just cockroaches, but there are <laughs> cockroaches and also of different sizes as well. That freaked me out. So they, they come pouring out and I'm like, okay, okay, crap, cockroach. And then there's like huge one starts coming yeah. out well, and you, the music's you, like, <laughs> and it's played on like an accordion or something. Like, it's kind of like, look at this kids. Well, you, you're probably not going to want to hear this, but the, the way they actually got those cockroaches, they, they, were, they were imported from, I think, uh, South America somewhere. Right. And they have a chap who goes into these this this cave that's a, a bat cave full of bat guano, where the cockroaches <laughs> feast on them. And he lies, he, he covers himself in this in this stuff that attracts cockroaches, and lies face down in the guano, <laughs> wow. and waits for the cockroaches to swarm all over him. And then he just, oh my and they kind of drag him out and just scrape the cockroaches off him. What a job! Put them in a box <laughs> and send them to George Romero. So, uh, yeah, heck, yeah. I, I hope that guy got paid. I hope he got yeah. paid for that. That's, that's ridiculous. Got paid by the cockroach. <laughs> but I, I know what you mean. Uh, this is to me. This is more like a performance piece because it is just E.G. Marshall yeah. being horrible. And the dialogue's very sharp. I love the bit where he's he's talking to the widow of the guy. He's He's kind of driven to suicide, and he, even then, he's he's kind of enjoying himself. He's again, it's like Leslie yeah. Nielsen. He, he he likes the idea that people hate him. I think he gets off on that. It's like the Ebenezer Scrooge kind of quality yes. to him, but he doesn't get the redemption. He just gets that kind of horrific uh, finale yeah. where he just he doesn't learn anything from his mistakes. He just dies, which is quite yeah. horrible. <laughs> yes, and he's just he's got this like really sort of conservative view of the world and like the world's going to going to hell and um you know he he wants to isolate himself he he, he is very actually similar to some people today you know True. particularly of the very very conservative bent which is you, you know the the America used to be wonderful and now it's terrible and um, so I have to exist by myself and um there's a bit where he's talking to somebody from work over his telecom type of system and, mm. and saying you know well you know go out and have sex with someone like you know, <laughs> celebrate but make sure sh- make sure you wear a condom because like everyone's got the herpes these days he's <laughs> just he's just got this sense of like the what it's not it's not just the, the cockroaches that are the problem it's like everyone out there yeah. most people are below him they're like insects you know they're yeah, just like it's paranoia expendable yeah everything is filth yeah. and everything is disgusting and so he, <laughs> he talks to people but it's like either through on the phone or through that glass fishbowl in his in his door oh yeah morning mr pratt <laughs> it's like, and it's so coming through a weird filter <laughs> yeah and he says yeah uh, yeah people like you people of color you can you can you can rise up and it's like oh, oh yeah. okay yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes oh, yeah, i had forgotten about so that patronizing. Wow. Uh, yeah <laughs> exactly and and say so, but that, this is what's good and this is like the ec comic vibe it's like this horrible person like you're yeah. willing him to die and when he does <laughs> die you're like yes like there's no sense of like oh i like that person that's a shame yeah um it's just whereas you got whereas you do get that i think with um something to tide you over mm. that's i guess my point it's like with the crate um you know i i wasn't i, I didn't mind when billy died because i felt like she had a come yeah, absolutely you know yeah. um and, even, even uh, the grad student who dies it's 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 he's kind of a jerk he's he's, he's yeah yeah and yeah exactly and, and the janitor the, is is 
Well, no, the, the Janice, Janice is just, just, yeah, it's just, just like yeah. a red shirt there yeah, to be killed, exactly. which is fine. It was cute, but you know, he <laughs> should be dead. Um, and uh, and then in the first story, the characters are not particularly that likable, so you're quite mm. happy when you know um, tombstones fall on the heads. You're like, yeah, cool. And then again in Geordie Verrill, uh, at the end of that, yes, you feel sorry for him, but on the whole, um, he's so goofy um, <laughs> that you, you're not as bothered. But something to tide me over is the one tide you over is the is the one where I, you can kind of feel a connection yeah. with these two people. And you're like, I guess that's really tragic that they died. I would have liked them to have lived in a sense. Um, but yeah, so coming back to this last story, this is more in keeping where you're, you're, you're over the moon that this person is dead. <laughs> like it's, it's true. It's right yeah. that he was exterminated. And I love it. Again, like Leslie Nielsen, he's got a lot of like clunky, big 80s technology as well, which I think is really cool. Like the big yeah. computer and like the... Yeah, like giant remote control, like <laughs> clunk, clunk, and a beautiful uh, dressing gown. It's cool to think like that. That's like, that. that would be like the height of what we consider to be successful back in those days. Just an all-white apartment yeah. with really kind of fancy electronics in. It's, it's wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't Richard Gere in that episode? Which one? Um, something to tide you over. Isn't he on TV or something? I can't remember. I feel like he might be on the TV. That'd be cool. That. I don't I'm know. I'm sure I read that somewhere. I, it's I not mentioned remember, but... in the story, uh, but Leslie Nielsen's meant to be a film producer. So it's possible right. he's kind of keeping an eye on the films. I don't know. Well, and I think I think it might be in the sequence where Ted Danson is in his apartment or something and uh oh he's watching oh i can't remember what he was, he's what he's watching, watching something on tv like a soap opera or whatever yeah um so, so he's not watching an actual film he's i think he's watching um uh, uh something that was specially shot mm. for this oh, that's I, 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 this rings a bell but anyway so like um so uh, as eg marshall uh explodes in a, in a hail of uh, blood and cockroaches creep show draws to its end we have a, we have a slight epilogue in which Tom Atkins mm-hmm. gets his comeuppance for for uh, for for uh, panicking about his his son's predilection for horror comics, throws it in the bin. Tom Savini, of course, picks it up as the binman, which is a lovely little kind of ending. Yeah, and it's also a nice little um, it's a nice little punishment of hypocrisy, which again is another theme throughout this film because it's kind of the the kid kind of he rats his dad out for having porno, pornographic magazines at one point. Yeah. And he says yeah, the horror films are trash, but pornography is kind of okay. So I like that kind of that dichotomy yeah. that there's kind of between yeah. the two. Because I mean, this is taking place during a moral panic in America. This is like the early '80s when you know people were pointing the finger at things like rap music and video nasties and that kind of thing. Yeah. So it's nice you have kind of that recurrence of um, horror being made a scapegoat for things. Mm, and and I really related to that because you know being a a fan of these sorts of things and having posters of monsters and things in my in my bedroom, I was kind of conscious of that potentially being a bit weird. Um, <laughs> even I don't think it's weird, but at the time, you know, not everybody thinks in that sort of way. Um, and so I remember there could be a, a little bit of I don't know what loneliness is the right word, but a, a feeling of um, you know, is this is this is this weird that I like yeah. this stuff? And so, whenever I would see a film like a Stephen King film, like Salem's Lot, for example, where you've got a, a young character who loves horror, and mm. their parents are saying like, "Why why do you like this stuff?" And at the time, I was having um, parents' evenings, you know, where the teachers were saying to my parents, um, you know, look it's okay if he likes some of this stuff, but does every story have to be about a vampire, a monster? Does every paint picture he does in art have to have 
so much red crayon in it. Um, you know, and so watching something in Creepshow, for example, you really related to the kid um, mm. because the dad, Tom Atkins, who I love, of course, so it's, it's quite disconcerting seeing him without a mustache. But Tom Atkins saying stuff like um, to the mum, like, do, do, do you mind him watching this crap? All this horror crap? Like, he just dismisses it as, as totally meaningless. And yet the boy sees a power in it. Mm. And <laughs> there really is a power in it because he's able to kill his own dad with it. So um, there's a kind of empowering nature to, um, to that wraparound story. And, 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 you know, in anthology films, the wraparound stories don't, aren't always particularly memorable. Well, they're normally very one note. I mean, going back to the old yeah. Amicus ones, the, the wraparound story, it normally ends with uh, everybody turning out to be dead. It's just that that all, yeah, and yeah. that's it, or it loops itself like Dead of Night, where it just repeats mm -hmm. itself over and over again. It's it's very um, fatalistic, but it's nice here yeah. that you have like a, a definite ending, and it is yeah. that horror has power, and that you shouldn't yeah. really, you know, judge people or meddle with it because it has its own Completely, thing going yeah. on that you don't understand. And just because mm. you don't understand it, you can't, you don't have license to destroy it, you know? Yeah. And there's, an, and, and there's enough going on, I think, in the wraparound story to make it feel like its own little story. Mm. So it's almost like there are six stories in this where you don't, you don't get that always with anthology films. Often it's four stories with a kind of ha coat hanger mm. that they all hang off. Whereas this feels like five stories, which is a, impressive, with an actual bonus. Mm, absolutely. Sixth. So, any final thoughts on Creepshow before we move on to uh, other business, Peter Laws? Um, only to say that I think Creepshow stands up uh, today as a very smart, solid film, which, like I said at the start, really manages the the delicate balance between humour, nastiness, and horror and creepiness. And I think it's a really quite a, quite an achievement. Um, and I, and I, and noticing at the time, you know, reviews that came out at the time recognized that mm. they saw that there was something more to this, you know, but mind you, um, moving on to Creepshow 2, mm. uh, not to talk too much about that, but Creepshow 2, I found to be quite a crushing disappointment <laughs> compared to what Creepshow 1 is, yeah. is so good. No, I, I, Creepshow I can see 2, that, yeah. don't get me wrong. I love the second story, The Raft mm -hmm. and The Hitchhiker's um not that bad but it's not that good <laughs> the first one chief woodhead yeah. was quite disappointing <laughs> yeah. um it's got an amazing soundtrack uh, but other than that it, yeah that was that was quite disappointing so creep show still stands stands tall i think I agree i echo everything you say and i, I think it's it's a, it's a wonderful film to watch when you're quite young it's a good gateway into mm, other yeah. horror it's because it, it, like i said it's the cast is so great and it references so many other things it lead you on some really interesting places and it's like i say it's just silly fun you can you can watch it at any point and kind of get something from it and have it on and concentrate on or not concentrate on it it's mm. it's a lovely film just to just to wallow in i think yeah and sp it's actually speaking of the soundtrack mm. is because I'm, I'm a bit of a Geek with with film soundtracks. It's kind of what I mostly listen to, really. Mm. And the, the soundtrack to this has been released so many in in so many different ways. Like it was on a Japanese vinyl, and then it was a CD from a company called La La Land, and then it got released in an expanded edition. So I have all of these different editions. Um, 
which is great. I think one of them's signed by the composer. Nice. But there's there's so much music in Creepshow. <laughs> there's so, not just John Harrison music, but there are stacks of um, library music, which is what George Romero used to do all the time, like just pa- packs, packs it to the gills mm. with almost like constant music. And so in the kind of geeky soundtrack circles I kind of move in online, <laughs> there's been a guy who has spent like the last 10 years tracking down every single <laughs> um, piece of music from this, from the source material to the music that's playing on the jukebox in, you know, the, the, the last, last story to it, just everything. And is able to comp has compiled this compilation, which is just, uh, it's just fantastic. But the John Harrison score itself, which he wrote by the way, um, uh, because he just thought, well, rather than just have library music, which I think was one of the intentions, mm-hmm. you know, John Harrison was like, well, Hey, why don't I get my synths out and come up with something he did and created a brilliant, brilliant score, which, um, which elevates the film, particularly the title sequence where you've got all this animation Absolutely. going on and this Gothic swirling melodrama of, of a theme tune which just stands up today and was one of the first things I learned how to play on a piano when I was a kid. Oh, that's very cool. So just, just, to, just to test your, your, your knowledge a little more, uh, what, what other films did he do the score for? Well, he did um, Day of the Dead, ah. uh, which um, was kind of cal- Calypso-type um, music, yeah. which I think is amazing. <laughs> um, it's a brilliant score, um, but other people think it sounds like, you know, something you'd hear on a like, se- yeah. Secret of Monkey Island or something <laughs> or a kind of desert island. But... Um, uh, George Romero was a huge fan of that score and used to, and, and so we'd listen to the day of the dead soundtrack in his car when he's driving around. So man, this is neat. Um, so he, he loved that. Um, uh, and, uh, he, John Harrison, he also did the music for a film called effects, mm-hmm. which is, uh, pretty good. Yes. Yeah, he's, he's done a few things, but not enough. He, he, in my opinion, he should have been doing, he should have been one of the one of the main uh, yeah based on this absolutely the composers, guy was, yeah. the guy had skills so um last time you spoke to us uh, we talked about the creepy cove community church which is still oh, yes. ongoing um new season coming out soon yes yeah so uh new new episode for that comes out next week i think well when we were in march yeah okay and then i'm also uh, i start since we last spoke started working for an american podcast company for a show that they have called frightful yeah which um, i'm a big fan is, tell, tell me more about this one because it's it's oh, uh, thank you yeah this was a co- I mean, it's funny how things work out but a journalist friend of mine just said this is company looking for writers for this podcast and so i contacted them and you know offered to write a script for them to see if they would like it anyway they said yeah we like it do you want to actually narrate it narrate this episode i've tried that and they said we like this so much why don't you become the lead writer and the host which was amazing so it means that now i i'm hosting this this show which is yes scary true stories from spooky true crime to um you know the paranormal weird kind of cults and stuff mm-hmm. like that and it's um it's it, yeah what, what, what kind of subjects have you covered so far um lo- loads of stuff so it you know, the episode that's just come out was from a Brazilian case of a of a young eleven year old girl who had a poltergeist in her house, and whether or not the poltergeist was real, who knows? But she was labelled by investigators as having a witch inside her, and eventually she tragically drank rat poison to kill herself, and so it's that death by poltergeist type of thing? Question mark. Um, but other things like this uh, episode on premature burial so lots of stories about you know people who have genuinely been buried alive which is just terrifying there's one there's one horrific case of a guy who was um 
who was who dropped down dead. Well, they thought he was dead, and they buried him in a in a coffin. But for some reason, they had to dig him up again to reinter him. And when they dug him back up, they found that he turned round <laughs> inside the coffin, and he had gnawed his way through with his teeth through the um through the wood to get out. Um, but was going in the wrong direction. So, <laughs> so some of this sort of stuff is really, it really like a creep show episode. Like, like, yeah, it is. It's, it's pretty dark. Um, but no, it's fun. But what's quite fun about that show as well is like it's it's paid. I get paid by advertising for True. doing that. So um, so it just means I could be telling a story about a um, you know really really intense mass cult suicide, and then halfway through it'll be like, "Are you getting your vitamins today?" Well, <laughs> down at Walmart, you can get. So anyway, yes, yeah, so that's still happening and um, that comes out. And if you go to petelaws.co.uk, you'll find out more about that. Absolutely. And I, I, I've got to ask as, uh, as a fan, will, will there be another Matt Hunter novel soon? I mean, are, we, are, we, are you working on anything uh, literary? Well, not, not at the moment. And that's not because like, I didn't want to, but you, like I had four books out and then lockdown hit and then ended up doing podcasting as, as another thing to do, you know, to try and kind of help earn a living and stuff. And, uh, and so, so far, no, but there's a possibility of that. I'm in the process of doing some stuff with that. So we'll, we'll see what happens, but, but my publisher didn't ask me to write another one. You know, basically. <laughs> so, I was, so, so I was like, well, hang on a minute. I'm not going to sure. just suddenly go into writing one. I'm going to have to think about this because obviously writing books takes time, but, um, there could be the potential of doing more of that for sure well i'd certainly love to read it and before we Thank go you. uh the, the the usual two questions uh what are you reading at the moment and uh can you recommend something that's maybe flown under the radar that you think more people should be looking at okay um well i i'm currently reading a book which was sent to me by my non-fiction publisher um and it's uh, a history of it's a graphic history of medieval times which is actually really interesting. I, 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 the the Dark Ages is is one of those times in history which you know is not written. There's not a lot written about it because, um, you know, so many of the sources were destroyed in mm. either wars or you know not everyone keeps records for thousands of years anyway. So it's to try to unpack what exactly happened in the medieval ages. So I'm reading that at the moment, really enjoying that, and uh, stuff that might have gone under the radar. Well, a book I think that um, is really worth reading that may have gone under people's radar is called The Ruin of All Witches by Malcolm Gaskell, called Life and Death in the New World. And it's a, it's, yeah, it's a history book, which is about a kind of neglected area of um, witch hunts in America in a town called Springfield, where basically a, a couple, a married couple, start accusing each other of being witches. And it's just it's just fascinating and really tragic to see what sort of bizarre evidence people would take as sign of being in, being a witch. So <laughs> it might be like one of these guys comes around their, uh, the house of a neighbor and looks at them in a funny way. <laughs> and then the next day, the woman of that house, the neighbor try and makes a, makes a pie and it doesn't work. <laughs> so she tries to make the pie again and it doesn't work. And then when it doesn't work a third time, she's like, my neighbor's a witch, yeah, you know, cursed pie. give me yeah. a cursed pie. So it's that sort of stuff where you're like, wow, people don't need much, much excuse to label another person's demonic and witch like, and what's interesting about that, of course, is the 
not much has changed. Yeah, fair enough. No, always good to hear Malcolm Gaskill get a mention on here. Uh, it's, uh, we've worked with Malcolm before in the Hallowed oh, really? Histories project. Uh, give, he gave an introduction to Witchfinder General a few years ago as part of our film oh, festival. Oh, wonderful. And he's attached to the UEA, which has uh, always been a supporter of this podcast. So thank you Brilliant. very much for mentioning him. Uh, I, and I know this is uncharacteristic, but I'd also like to mention another book that I think uh, is coming out soon. Uh, it's Faith Horror to which you've provided an introduction. It's a oh, non-fiction yes. account of the pagan and satanic uh, subtexts in films of the 60s and 70s and how they presented a counterpoint to Christian narratives. It's written mm. by Dr. Linda Shepard, the researcher of this show, and uh, my wife, of course. And Peter yeah. was kind enough to write an introduction for it, so thank you very much for doing ah, I was that. On it. Uh, yeah, it was great. Great. Also with uh, art by Simon Pritchard, one of our favorite artists, uh, who, writes some, uh, who does some wonderful horror-themed uh, oil paintings and check his work out online. So it only remains for me to say goodbye to my guest, Peter Laws. Goodbye, Peter. Goodbye. And uh, speaking of Linda, she's, she's been uh, uh, I'm getting pretty hungry now and she, she's, she's been baking, baking all day. It's taking ages. Where's my cake? <laughs> Linda, where's my cake? Where's my cake? I just want, just want to eat cake. That's really like cake, you know? Okay, we're done. Thank you very much for listening to the Constant Reader Podcast, hosted by me, Richard Shepard. Don't forget to rate, review, like, and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, Stitcher, and any other podcatcher you may use. And uh, with thanks to Stephen Parks for his production skills. And we look forward to seeing you again very soon. Thank you very much.